Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. As always, it is the science that you didn't know you need, but after this, you will be... You'll wonder how you ever did without it. Um, joining me this week is Claire. Hello, Claire. Hello, Chris. How are you? I am excellent, Claire. Oh, and uh, do you have some amazing science for our amazing listeners? Well, um, I do have a little bit of science. Um, maybe you have heard on the grapevine of some um, new research that's come out and, you know, sorry, I'm just underlining that word heard because uh, it's a great pun. Um, new research that's come out that is looking into when back in time and space, when in evolution did us mammals become warm-blooded? And there's some fascinating new research that links uh, pretty much, uh, you know, when that event took place to the workings of our inner ear. So they're looking what? and comparing the workings of inner ears across sort of like different warm-blooded and cold-blooded creatures and have made this incredible sort of hypothesis and breakthrough through the fossil record. It's very interesting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so listen up. Oh, uh, look, I'm, you're going to bring some balance to the program is all I'm saying. I will, I will. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm glad you got proprioception into, um, into the into the mix there Chris always and how about you have you got some science for us this week as well you bring it yeah I do have some science I I feel um, a little bit bad now that I have been doing such a you know an up boosting of the the mood here for this because I've got well remember a while ago I started a kind of a series on research misconduct Mm -hmm. and I flagged there plenty more to discuss in future installments and now an important new possible case of research misconduct has emerged and it's affecting research into Alzheimer's disease, mm. um, the cause thereof with implications for the treatment thereof. Yeah, it's kind of been a bit of a, a big story in the in the science world, yeah. reported in the journal Science, as a lot of good things are. As I said, it's perhaps not science at its best, but it's science at its, uh, I guess, correcting itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, That is what we like to see. It is, it is. And hopefully, you know, after this we'll eventually get closer to uh, treatment for Alzheimer's, which does all seem a long way off. But um, I'll talk about that a bit as well as how uh, this kind of case like this factors into the, the trouble that we're having finding uh, treatments for such a important disease. On with the show.
Chris, when you think about the difference between mammals and something like, let's say, reptiles or fish, what comes to mind that really separates us? Mm, scales? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess not all reptiles would have scales, I would say, but um, maybe something a bit sort of um, closer to your heart? Ah, uh, is it something to do with like um, your... is it called endotherms? Yes, um, that is. You remember your year nine biology? Endotherms and right, ectotherms. Yeah. Our warm blood versus our cold versus their cold blood. Um, yeah, we are in a very unique and enviable situation as mammals, where we produce our own body heat and we control our own body temperature. Like you say, we are endotherms or warm-blooded and there's a lot of reasons to be glad and happy um, about something we had no control about but being warm-blooded we can as humans and as mammals we can withstand colder environments which means we can be more active in the day and the night um, and it makes us more sus less sorry less susceptible to pathogens and fungi uh, especially when compared to our cold-blooded cousins. And um, we also tend to, as a result, reproduce as well. So this is all very advantageous and, in fact, maybe one of the main reasons. <clears throat> and, in fact, maybe one of the main reasons why mammals tend to dominate almost every global ecosystem. So really warm-bloodedness, uh, it's... You know, the key to making mammals what we are today. And it was likely the starting point where all the other parts of mammalness, like maybe the hair on our bodies um, and other things, evolved. Now, I mean, obviously we're not the only animals sort of warm-blooded. I mean, birds... Yeah, birds are too. It. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And allegedly dinosaurs, uh, many dinosaurs are probably were warm-blooded so really? is it a um okay. I didn't know. this is something I didn't that, know. I've, that i've heard mm -hmm. i'm so i'm curious like if you're looking at um how mammals became warm-blooded um whether it's conversion evolution with our birds and dinosaurial friends that is a very interesting point i won't go like i haven't gone into that in this story but maybe would be good to follow up on that because yeah would it have been conversion or would it have just happened once and then Birds, yeah, I don't know. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Mm. Science. <laughs> Future science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of big mysteries of evolution. Um, and until now, well, until recently, we haven't known exactly, you know, when warm-bloodedness became a thing specifically for our mammalian ancestry. Most scientists had speculated that the transition to warm-bloodedness was very gradual. It was a process that happened over like tens of millions of years. Um, and some people, some researchers had suggested it happened quite close to the origin of mammals. So when mammals, when sort of like, you know, mammals actually really um, started turning up in the fossil record. But there hasn't been a lot of evidence to back this up. But a new paper published in Nature this week, it's pricked the ears um, of uh, evolutionary scientists around the world because for the first time, scientists have looked at the fossil record of early mammal 
inner ears and, you know, non-mammals as well. So looked at the whole sort of fossil record, looked at the inner ears, and from that have drawn conclusions about when mammals became warm-blooded. Um, the paper's called Inner Ear Biomechanics Reveals Reveals a Late Triassic Origin for Mammalian Endothermia. So there you go. Wow. So late Triassic, that is fairly early in the whole thing. That is like mm. of your, your your big kind of your big three, your Triassic, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. That one's the one that came first. So that's when the dinosaurs were first emerging. And I think mammals were first emerging too, wasn't it really? Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> the end of the story, but it was actually before mammals um, uh, evolved. So... There you go. Okay. Yeah, it was a little so bit what is it about the inner ear that tells us? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Chris. Um, I mean, this is a very fascinating story because it's sort of, first of all, a link between the anatomy of the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. It was a bit of an educated guess between the publishing scientists. Um, they sort of had this hunch that there was this link with the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. Um, and secondly, they needed... They needed, I guess, it was only, I guess, bef because they had access to this incredibly abundant and diverse fossil record in South Africa of all these land mammals that have, that, that is located, you know, I think it's in the Karoo Valley in South Africa. At the specific time period that they were looking at, that they could go to this fossil record and actually compare many, many, many different fossils to be able to get a really clear understanding of um, a whole lot of different um, different extinct species in ears to look at, you know, to actually pinpoint the time. So let me start first with the scientist's intuition. Started with the two researchers thinking about the inner ear and as anyone who's ever felt motion sick knows the inner ear, it's not all about hearing. It, as you said in the intro, it houses the organ of balance. These are called semicircular canals. That's where, that's where the magic of balance happens in these semicircular canals. Now there are three semicircular canals and if you can imagine them, um, they're oriented in three dimensions in space. So there's an X, a Y and a Z plane in your semicircular canals. And they're filled with a fluid that flows in the canals and as the head moves, it activates receptors to tell the brain exactly sort of the three dimensional position of the head and body. Now, the runniness or the viscosity of um, the fluid in these semicircular canals is critical to the balance, um, to, to balance pretty much. So, um, this, this fluid and the way that this, that these sort of, um, semicircular canals are structured, uh, is incredibly important, but this fluid, just like honey or any other sort of liquid that has a viscosity, it's quite a lot runnier in warmer conditions than in cold conditions. So you can imagine where we're going here, right? So, um, <clears throat> We have these semicircular canals um, and we have this liquid that in cold-blooded creatures would be like the honey left in the fridge, like honey that you leave in the fridge or on a cold winter morning. And so the semicircular... That really kind of crystallised really? honey, that, that, that only white 
really good slice, but also it just does not flow. Yeah. Um, so the actual semicircular canals are shaped and adapted for this slow-moving, slow-flowing, cold winter morning honey. But when the honey warms up and becomes runny, the fluid and the canals don't work the same. And so the semicircular canals have adapted a different shape or a different morphology. So this is what scientists see in warm-blooded versus cold-blooded creatures. They see this different geometry of semicircular canals all to take into account this viscosity of the inner ear liquid. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, so that's where South Africa's um, yeah wealth of fossils comes in. Um, so the scientists were like, okay, we just need to see when the cold to warm-blooded um, inner ear change happened and just trace these semicircular canals through geological time using using this incredible fossil record. And from there, they can pinpoint the species in which the change of geometry happened. And with that change in geometry is the change from cold blood to warm blood. So it provides this accurate guide of when warm bloodedness evolved. Um, so the Karoo region, like I said before, it's in the basin it's a basin in South Africa. It's preserved this sort of treasure trove of fossils, many of them belonging to our mammalian ancestors. And there's pretty much an unbroken record of evolution over about 100 million years, um, documenting sort of transformation from reptilian-like animals to mammals. Um, and the researchers used CT scanning techniques. They used 3D modelling, and they were able to reconstruct the inner ear of dozens of mammalian ancestors. And from that, they could pinpoint um, exactly which species had an inner ear anatomy that was consistent with warmer body temperatures and which ones did not. So from that, they found that our warm bloodedness developed in our mammalian ancestors um, around 233 million years ago. So this was in the late Triassic period. So it's actually 33 million years prior to the origin of mammals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of time there where we had warm blood, but we weren't mammals yet. Hmm. So that suggests that, you know, all those other mammalian things that um, that we evolved probably came after. <laughs> it was probably the first thing that happened. Um, and according to the researchers, um, the warm bloodedness evolved fairly quickly in geological terms. So they could actually see it evolve in less than a million years. So, I mean, seems like a long time to me, but in um, evolutionary uh, terms, geologists it's pretty are, quick. Yeah, geologists are like they Geologists, yeah, they don't... I don't want to say anything. You know, they don't, they they talking, don't talk in generations, do they? They're, 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 they're not in a hurry. They talk in eon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there you go, Chris. You've heard it here first. The ears are the window to our warm blood and understanding just how it is that mammals came to be the dominant land animal across the world. In the history of science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about uh, possible or likely research misconduct 
in some research into Alzheimer's disease. Now, Alzheimer's disease is like, it is a very serious thing. It is the leading cause of dementia. Um, and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, is the second leading cause of death in Australia, mm. um, following on from heart disease. Although this year may be bumped down a bit by COVID-19, mm. which is uh, making a run for the top spot. Uh, and But also dementia, is, it is one of those, uh, I guess, scary um scary diseases you know people are i think it's one of the ones people are most frightened of getting because it feels like that loss of self um losing your memories losing your ability to function yeah. is something that i think a lot of people dread as they get older yeah absolutely and then i mean you know it can be debilitating for so long and you know you know like knowing i guess that you have it and what the future could hold um can be pretty fearful um, thing for a lot of people. Yeah. Interesting though, um, and maybe I should mention this because I don't have it at my fingertips, there has been some studies showing that the subjective experience of dementia is not as bad for the person with it as it is for the people around them. I wish it's obviously bad for the people around them, but it, I guess what's saying, it, it looks worse than it feels in some ways, mm. um, which is maybe, um, you know, some sort of easing it mm. in a little bit mm. but anyway look all this is i guess is just to say that it is something that um affects a lot of people something that it would be great if we had a treatment for but it still yet eludes the scientific community um now alzheimer's disease was first described properly in 1906 by a german psychiatrist with the name of alzheimer um, you may not be surprised to hear that mm. uh alois alzheimer um and he found plaques in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease and of this and these plaques were made out of well I'm sure he couldn't tell what the composition was at that point but there was mysterious plaques and they were determined to be out of this protein called amyloid beta mm. and this is one of the characteristics most notable features of Alzheimer's disease and so that has remained I guess the leading kind of theory or hypothesis for the cause of the condition um but what's causing the plaques well, that's one question, but the other thing is you don't really know whether the plaques are a cause of it or like a symptom. A symptom, of it. yeah. Yeah, so you don't know whether it's just like they just happen to be there, something else is causing the actual problems. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been a lot of success really confirming that it is indeed the cause, let alone in treating uh, the, uh, whatever the cause is. Um, it just so happens though that 100 years after Alzheimer's um, publication, there was another paper published, uh, a very influ influ influential paper published in the journal Nature, um, that seemed to shed some light on this causal relationship. The, um, the lead author was one Sylvain Lesney. Uh, he was working in the lab of Karen Ash at the University of Minnesota. Now, in this study, they identified a toxic oligomer. Um, What's an oligomer? Oligomer. Oh, I don't, I'm not very pronouncing here. Um, basically, it's a variation of this protein. Um, so these plaques that form, they're kind of, as it might suggest by being these kind of these masses, they're just kind of, they're big lumps of stuff. And although the amyloid beta protein is toxic, just being in a lump of a plaque, it's not clear how that is causing the problem. Whereas these toxic oligomers um, are soluble and um, potentially could be causing more damage. Um, the one in particular they found, uh, they called amyloid beta star 56. 
and they found it in the brains of rats that had been engineered, genetically engineered to build up these amyloid beta protein plaques. Um, and when they basically they extracted this this particular oligomer, they purified it and they injected it into young rats and found that it affected their memory, their ability to recall things they just learned. And it seemed like it was a pretty good indication that something like this is what is the cause of it. If you could basically identify it in the brains of someone who has a disease and you could transfer it to someone who doesn't have the disease and they get it, then it kind of is a good indication that it may be the causal factor. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this wasn't the only thing worked on in this hypothesis, but it did breathe new life into it and it generated a new line of research. Um, the this stuff, these toxic oligomers, was not a concept in Alzheimer's before this paper was published. Um, apparently, in 2021, there was something like in America, 290, $287 million of studies being done on this hypothesis, essentially related wow. to this hypothesis. So there was a lot of research dollars and time and effort and sort of yeah. um, being put into this that was sort of taking up other avenues and other potential sort of um, research fields within this space. That's right. That's right. And as you kind of indicated there, this is, there's some, recently some doubt has been thrown on this. Some significant doubt has been thrown on this. Um, So what it came about was there was a drug that was being uh, tested. Some of the researchers working on it believed that it was based on some fraudulent research. And so another Alzheimer's researcher investigated, uh, someone called Matthew Schrag, and he looked at the original papers, including this, um, a number of papers, including this um, original uh, Nature article, and found some um, oddities in some of the figures in this paper. Mm, so, What sort of oddities? Well, so in this kind of research, they use this technique called Western blots, which is essentially you use, you extract proteins mm. and then you use various kinds of antibodies to stain them and to get a kind of little you get these little bars on a piece of paper which shows you what the protein you have um and these images which put in the paper appeared to be manipulated so they've been essentially been faked essentially some of this uh some of these um, figures is what it appeared to be um other people have since examined the the figures as well and come to similar conclusions um and what do the authors yeah, say well the authors um the main author the lead author has not really said much the the they said that was sylvain lesnay is the the main person um the so the supervisor also was karen ash um she kind of standing by the research um but also she was not responsible for actually preparing these images um it's kind of a weird thing where she's sort of responsible for it because it's her laboratory but it's the work seems to be traced down to all the all the faulty figures in work by this one particular um, author, which is Sylvain uh, Lesney. Um, so yeah, it's it does look like a pretty bad case of someone um, uh, yeah faking the the images. Now um, and as you said, it's led to a lot of research, a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, kind of perhaps dead ends. But in a particular case, the reason why this came up was because, this, like I said, this other drug was being studied. And the people who were concerned about it were basically, if this is based on incorrect research, and essentially you're putting, giving people a drug which is not going to work and has risks of side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not getting any benefit from, they're likely to get some harm from this drug. 
and it's immoral as well as um, the amount of money being uh, being wasted on it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so this is it. Kind of is a bit of a it is a a big in an important case of misconduct. It's also a bit of a blow to Alzheimer's research. Mm. Um, it follows a controversy last year. There's something that happened. There was a, a drug called aducanumab, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, it was a notable Alzheimer's drug. There was also or also um, targeting this amyloid beta. Um, not this same variety was that was in this um, this other paper. But um, yeah, it's, it was a drug that was used to target the amyloid beta. Um, the aducanumab is a name. It's got MAB on the end, M-A-B. That um, means it's a monoclonal antibody. These kind of um, drugs come up a lot these days. You often hear about them in cancer um, treatment. Uh, a lot of COVID drugs and monoclonal antibodies as well. They're basically designed to attack a particular substance. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's designed to attack the amyloid beta. Um, and this one caused a lot of controversy because... Uh, look, the, the, a lot of people were not convinced by the research that went into it. Um, it was approved by the American Fed, Food and Drug Administration. Um, the experts on the panel there resigned afterwards because they did not agree that it should be approved. It seems like a big reason for the approval was basically because there aren't any good drugs that are that effective for Alzheimer's. There are some drugs that are used, but there's nothing really spectacular. Um, so it's kind of a desperation thing. Um, it has not been approved in Australia, I should say. It's actually been withdrawn from uh, application for approval in Australia. The, apparently the, the pharmaceutical company, even though they still believe the drug works, they decided that the Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration was unlikely to approve it, so they just basically gave up um, on getting it sent to Australia. But it is, again, is based on this amyloid beta hypothesis. It um, Apparently, it's very good at attacking amyloid beta. It's just that... There's a lot of doubt about whether it makes any difference to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, which again indicates that perhaps this is a flawed hypothesis. There could be something else going on that's actually causing the disease itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, some people still stand by this kind of work that Lesnay was doing, saying that there could be something to it still. Other people not being able to replicate his findings at all, which not surprising was misconduct. Um, but yes, I guess... In the context of, I suppose, the previous stories I'd done, it shows, I suppose, how some of this stuff, um, the effect it can have, the scale of the effect it can have, um, but also, I suppose, the response to it too. Now, the reason this was, um, has come into the news is because uh, Matthew Schrag, who was the researcher who was investigating it, um, he reported it to the appropriate authorities and they said they would investigate and you realise that could basically take years for them to do the report. In the meantime, right. you're wasting hundreds of millions of dollars, you're putting mm. people's lives at risk. And so he's decided to go public with the, um, with the findings. And, um, yeah, I think it shows something too about the, I guess, how, you know, maybe how these kind of allegations should be responded to when they are so important, they're so high profile, that maybe, you know, having these kind of lengthy investigations might sound good for the researchers involved, but there are other people who are affected by it and you need to act, pass, act a bit quicker than saying, oh, look, you know, we're going gonna to take our time with this. Yeah. I mean, surely there's some sort of middle ground there. You'd hope so. But, uh, yeah, in the meantime, like I said, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a blow to some of the leading um, hypotheses about um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, but maybe if it is kind of blocking off one dead end, it might lead us to perhaps more fruitful searches and, uh, you know, eventually something has got to be found. The brain is a very complex organ 
Um, but eventually, you know, we've got to find out how it works. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.